Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 20. This is a long and involved story. I'm going to read and highlight a few of the major sections from 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that he has determined harm. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is any guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if it is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him for he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan goes to his father's house to the feast. When Saul realizes that David is not there, he makes an excuse for David, and that makes Saul furious in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan goes to meet with David in verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, 
Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? We're going to behold what your love is like, and we need eyes of faith to understand that. Would you give that to us today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as you guys well know, we are neck deep in the race to see who will be the candidates for each political party. We're in a presidential race, and as things are heating up in the debates and slurs are being made about emails and servers and borders and bathroom breaks and the mud flies, I've noticed a striking difference between the 21st century democracy that we now have and 10th century BC monarchy that we're studying in 1 Samuel. And this is one of the striking differences I've noticed. The loser of the presidential race in 21st century democracy is not going to be impaled to death. Isn't it interesting how that works? I mean, monarchy politics in David and Saul's day, this is terrifying. The rule of the day in the ancient Near East at this time was to purge and solidify. If somebody makes a bid for your power, you have a Ben Carson or a Bernie Sanders that is after your position. Once you secure it, you eliminate them and their entire family. That's what you do. That's what we read again and again in the book of Kings. It's brutal when a family comes to power and they wipe out other families around them. We need to keep that in mind when we enter chapter 20. We're going to see David, who just in chapter 19 is running for his life from Saul, who tries to kill him. He actually goes to Saul's house because Saul's not there, but Jonathan is there and he meets with Jonathan. The two of them meet in Saul's house. David is the rising military star. He's loved by the people of Israel. And Jonathan is the rightful heir of the throne, and he is also loved by the people. And you need to understand that one of these men will be the king of Israel, and the other one will die. There's no two ways to play this in 10th century monarchy. There's no third way that we could see this happen. One of these men will be king, And the other one will die. Now to add to that tension, we need to remember that these men haven't known each other very long. We celebrate the friendship of David and Jonathan. They've known each other for two chapters. They met in chapter 18 after the story of Goliath when they came together and made a covenant with one another. So they don't know each other all that well because David has spent half their friendship on the run. When they come together in chapter 20, you've got to believe that David has some serious questions. Can I trust my friend Jonathan? He tells me that his father doesn't want to kill me, but I know that it is true he does want to kill me. Is Jonathan hiding the plans of his father, and can I trust him? And you've got to wonder if Jonathan is thinking the same thing. Can I trust David? He's gaining all this power, and I'm giving him power, but when he ascends to the throne, if he does, will he keep me and my entire family safe? Can I trust him? Well, things come to a head in verse 8 when David is so frustrated that Jonathan will not tell him the details about his father that David says in verse 8, but if there is any guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? If you're going to do it, Jonathan, just do it. 
pull the trigger yourself. Don't drag me to this feast. Don't put me in front of your father and let him do your dirty work. If you want to kill me, if I've done anything wrong, you do it yourself. Well, Jonathan, when he hears this, he understands the gravity of the situation. He sees the tension that's building between the two of them, and he grabs David, and he takes him away from Saul's house, where there are listening ears, and he brings him out into a field, and they establish the friendship and the love that they have for each other. We're going to explore this love a little bit between these two men. We're going to turn it over and over and see how the love that Saul, that David and Jonathan have for each other is God-like love. It, it, it's a window into the love that God has for us. And the more we study it and the more we see it, the more we understand the, the love that God extends to us and the more we're inspired to extend that love to others. So I want to just look at three aspects of this love. The first of which is that God-like love is covenantal. Back in chapter 18, when these men first meet, in verse 3, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. It's a pledge to him that says, I'm going to love you and protect you and be faithful to you. And David makes the same covenant to Jonathan. And this covenant must have made a big impression on both of them because they both refer to it in our passage. In verse 8, David reminds Jonathan, you made a covenant with me. In verses 13 through 17, Jonathan basically reiterates the covenant to David. He says these are the pieces of the covenant. And both of these men, when they speak about covenant, they use that great Hebrew word chesed, which reminds us it's a reference to the word that God uses of his faithful, steadfast love for us. That's the kind of love that these guys want from each other. That's what they're asking from the other person. I want you to love me like God loves me. They say that in verse 14. Jonathan says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Jonathan looks David in the eyes and he says, what I need from you most right now is that you will love me in the same way that God loves me. Friendship is covenantal. It's more faithfulness than feeling. It, it, it's a decision to love another person regardless of what they could ever do or say. That kind of love that we seek to extend to another person, that kind of covenantal love, it takes its cues from Christ and the gospel. Think about the relationship between what we believe about God and how we treat other people. Think about the relationship between theology and friendship. If I have a works-based religion, how do I treat another person versus a a faith-based grace that I receive from God? Now, that's an interesting thing to think about because the one, our theology, seems like a personal thing that happens vertically between me and God, and the other, friendship is a public thing that happens horizontally. What could the two things possibly have to do with each other? And the Bible says absolutely everything. The way you understand God's love for you and the way he treats you is the way you turn and treat other people. If I believe that God loves me based on the caliber of my Christianity, that he's happy with me when I do well, that he's disappointed and angry or absent from me when I falter, how can I not but turn around and do the same thing to other people? You guys remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? They both go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stands in the center of the temple and he lifts up his hands to God and he says, God, I thank you that I am a good person, a righteous person, that I tithe and I fast and I do these things and I'm not like this tax collector. 
The Pharisee is basing his entire relationship with God based on his performance, on his goodness, and he can't help because of that disparage the tax collector for his badness and his sin. That's what the vertical does to the horizontal. That's what that relationship does. Now, you and I, we're much more subtle than that. You're not going to catch me up here praying, thank you, God, that I'm not like these people in the back row who don't love you as much as I do. We're, we're too smart for that. The ways you're going to begin to see that in my own life is I'm going to grab you with a word of gossip about another person. Do you hear about so-and-so? Do you hear about their struggle? Let's just let's remember to pray for that person. Let's pray for her because she's going through a tough time. Or I'm going to patronize another person. I'm going to assume the position of ministry. I'm going to say about a person, you know, this person is struggling right now, and so I'm really trying to minister to them. I'm spending more time with them. Uh, I'm being around them. I'm ministering to them. And notice that we're not talking about friendships here. If you're thinking about a performance-based relationship, the more righteous person in that relationship is the benefactor, and the less righteous person is the beneficiary. I'm the one that is superior ministering to the inferior person and that performance-based poison can kill a relationship. You have a theology of works righteousness and it will doom you to a thin veneer of friendship that will take far more than it can ever give. You find yourself in that, you find yourself applying that to your relationships, repent of that and get out of it. It has nothing to do with the friendship that God extends to us and he gives us. Well, you contrast that, that works-based religion that begins to size up other people around us with the grace that God has given us. He's extended this grace which says, I love you in spite of yourself. I save you in spite of the fact that you are a sinner and you do not perform. I love you in the gospel. You begin to get a hold of something like that. You begin to think about that and receive that and delight in that. And that will begin to affect the way you treat other people. You don't have to turn here right now, but please mark down this passage. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, which says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you want to be an imitator of God? Do you want to be like God and feel like God? The place that begins is believing and knowing that you are a beloved child. Be imitators of God as beloved children. If I know that I'm loved by God, that's how I begin to imitate God. He goes on to say, and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. God-like love, it takes its cues from Christ. Just as Jesus loves us and gives himself up for us, so we turn with that same kind of love to love and delight and befriend another person. God-like love, it is a covenantal love. Well, secondly, God-like love is affectionate. Because by covenantal, we don't at all mean this cold kind of love that doesn't extend any kind of affection. We don't want to go down that road and think about this decision takes out any kind of emotive feelings. I've been working on a book of reformed pickup lines. I just started this weekend. I've got a long way to go. I picture a coffee table-sized book that, you know, single Presbyterian men will buy. And it'll have things in it like, hey, baby, we were meant to be together. You know, just simple, straight Calvinism that you're going to deliver to another person. But let me try this one on you, speaking of covenantal love. Baby, my love for you is more 
faithfulness than feeling. It's more covenantal than emotional. There's something that has just a troubling ring about that. If, you, if somebody says that to you in a bar or a bowling alley, don't go any further with that because you, you sense that you're using the word covenantal like you would use the word contractual and it brings all of this woodenness to it and it doesn't feel like an emotive, warm thing to be the receiver of. You don't, you don't want anything to do that. Anytime we read about God's covenantal love in scripture, we don't get that. We get something that is truly tender and emotive. I read Nehemiah 9.17 this weekend in which Nehemiah prays, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you feel the warmth of that covenantal love? Well, just for the sake of redundancy, we're going to say that not only is God-like love covenantal, but we want to underscore that to say God-like love is affectionate. It's warm, it's kind, it's tender, it is emotional. And because these two men are trying to share this God-like love with one another, they're striving to do that, this chapter is full of emotions. It's full of them. In verse 17, Jonathan loves David as his own soul. In verse 34, when Saul shames David at the feast, Jonathan is angry and he's grieved and he doesn't eat because of it. In verse 41, when the fate is sealed for David to run for his life, they kiss each other and they weep together over each other. This chapter is gushing with emotions, love, anger, grief, weeping. We said back in chapter 18 when we were studying the envy of Saul, we said that these knee-jerk gut emotions can betray idols in our heart. If I feel myself angry or fearful over something, that might be a clue that there's something more treasured in my heart than Christ. But the opposite can be true too. Feeling these gut emotions come out of us can also show us these wonderful things that we treasure in our heart. Which is why the Bible constantly commands us for our emotions. Be happy, be sad, be angry, be joyful, because these emotions betray what is most treasured in our heart. God-like love is affectionate because God is affectionate. And the more we seek to be imitators of God and to be like him, the more we are going to feel as God feels and extends those affections to us. Well, third and finally, we said God-like love is covenantal, it's affectionate. We also must say that God-like love is costly. It's going to cost us something to love another person in the same way that God loves us. Look at verse 31. Saul is, is challenging his son Jonathan across the table of the feast, and he says this to him. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Saul, he understands a tribal fight for the crown very well. He gets the dynamic of what's going on here. 
There is no such thing as a happy ever after ending in which a man from a different tribe, the tribe of Judah, ascends to the throne and he is surrounded by his family and clan and tribe. And there is a man who was supposed to be the king, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, Jonathan, where him and his extended family and his clan and his tribe, they all come together and sing Kumbaya forever and ever. That ain't going to happen. Saul understands that one of you is going to be king and one of you is going to die and he delivers across that dinner table a healthy dose of reality. Jonathan, this is what is going to happen. If you do not secure your kingdom, you're going to lose it and you're going to lose your life. When he says that and when he challenges his son with that, I don't just want you to hear a challenge I want you to see in that a temptation that is as old as Adam in the garden with the serpent, and it's as vivid as Jesus in the wilderness with Satan. Saul says, you and your kingdom are not safe. He's essentially saying, look, you've got two paths in front of you. You can do one or two things. Number one, you can have your life and you can have your kingdom. If you will seize it, you can have it. Or... You can go down this road, this stupefying, self-sacrificing way of serving another person in David, and you will die in the process. When the serpent comes to Adam, he says, you can be like God, or you can obey and follow God, and you can die to this notion of being like him. When Satan comes to Jesus, he takes him up on the pinnacle and he says, look at these kingdoms. You can have your life and these kingdoms. You don't need the cross. I'll give them to you or you can die. God-like love is costly. If we love like God loves, we give up everything. Friends, I wish we could just stick with the first two points. I love thinking about God's love as covenantal, a decision of faithfulness. I love thinking about the affection, the warm tenderness that God gives us. And I want that to inspire the way I treat other people. But honestly, I don't want to hear about this third one. I don't want to hear that God-like love is a costly love because I still imagine there's a world in which I can hang white knuckle to my life and my kingdom, my agenda, my reputation, what I want to do, and still at the same time give the impression that I love other people like God loves them. I I want both of those things. I want to have them together, and our passage is telling me you don't get to do that. Now I want to use just a very small illustration, but it's the stuff of everyday life. This past Tuesday, Julie and I, we were having premarital counseling with a couple. We sat down with them over uh, a meal together. And one of the points we emphasized with them was the place of repentance and forgiveness. You walk into a relationship and it doesn't matter how incompatible you are on paper. If you will be a person who will die to yourself and confess your sin to another person and they will be a person to forgive you, that will cover a multitude of sins in a relationship, literally, as you extend forgiveness. It's a wonderful thing. We said that at noon. At 5 p.m., as Julie's making dinner, I say a nasty remark about our family budget. It just... It wasn't necessary. I said it. It was dumb. And because we're scrambling with our kids, we just kind of go our separate ways. You've seen this scene a million times in your own life. 
and we find ourselves back together on the couch, 8 p.m., reading our own books. The kids are in bed, and I know that I've sinned against Julie, and I need to confess this sin. I know that I've done wrong by her, and I need to just put my book down and own up to that. But my pride of being right is just so enormous in my life. It touches so many aspects of my life that it is excruciating to go to another person and to tell them I'm wrong and I've offended you. It was almost as if Saul was sitting in between us and he turns to me at that moment and he says, David, as long as this daughter of a McWilliams is drawing these apologies out of you. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And you know what? Saul is absolutely right. The more I confess, the more I apologize, the more bricks I take out of this kingdom that I'm building, that I am a spiritual person and what I say is right. And the more I apologize, the more I take a brick out of that kingdom and I give it up and I die to myself. But you know what? Satan is a liar, and my kingdom is not worth much. And though I often, more often than not, choose to serve myself than to serve another person in that moment, I put down the book, and I turned to Julie, and I said, what I said was wrong. And I confess that to you, will you forgive me? Friend, I cannot tell you how freeing that is to ask for forgiveness and to receive it. It's a costly love, but I tell you, it's worth it. Jonathan chooses God-like love over life and kingdom, and it will cost him everything. After he makes that decision in front of his father Saul, he goes out and he meets David afterward, and they're weeping and holding each other and hugging and kissing, and it's as if Jonathan can see into his future because he turns to David and he says, would you please watch after my family? Would you do that? Would you make sure my kids are going to be okay? Would you please look after my family? And then look at these final lines of the chapter. We hear David rose and departed. David, he had spent three days in a field behind a heap of stones and Jonathan comes to him and lifts him up. He resurrects David after three days and based on his friendship, he says, I want you to go and I want you to go in peace. You are free to run and you will live. But then we read, and Jonathan went into the city, back to Saul's house, back to his doom. Jonathan is all but going to disappear from the pages of 1 Samuel until we see him again in the very final chapter in which he will be killed by the Philistines at his father's side. Jonathan could have had life and kingdom. If he would have listened to his father, he could have seized it and he could have had it and he might have been able to keep it. But it's like he considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasure of Israel. Even though he was rich, yet for David's sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, David is the one that might become rich. And when he does that, he shows us the covenantal, the affectionate, the costly love that God extends to us and that we extend to each other. Let's pray together.
Father, even as I ask for your spirit to fill us with this kind of love, I already wonder what it's going to cost us to lay down our lives and to take up our crosses and to follow you and to love another person. So Lord, I pray even now that you would give us courage as your church to love one another as you have loved us. You're going to do that in our midst. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.